I have too many things this morning going on. <laughs> but praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit who can help us to be instant in season and out. So I get a call about 7.30 this morning. Mariah is sick. Can you play bass for us? And I'm like, well, I was planning on praying a little bit and finishing out my lesson and, you know, having all my ducks in a row on my plan. And so there went that plan. So anyway, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Okay, this morning, we're just going to jump right into it. How many of y'all like to jump into things? I don't. It cuts against the grain of my personality. I'm a planner. I'm a person, I mean, did you not catch that just a while ago? I have my plan set, you know, and so forth. How many of y'all are planners in here this morning? Okay, good. I'm among good company there. The rest of y'all need to figure out, you know, how to gain some of that organization and skill. So that you don't burden the rest of us that have that. Amen, organizers. I'm just kidding. There's no condemnation. Praise the Lord. Do we have? Oh, man, there it is. You know, this morning we're going to talk about a subject, and I've tried to lace my presentation with some very tactful graphics. Some of you all might question the tact um, and wonder, dear Lord, are we fixing to learn about vampires? Zombies or something. No, we're not going to learn about vampires this morning. But we're going to learn about something the vampire knew about, and that was life. And I know that's kind of a terrible analogy or a terrible thing to, to draw into this. But, you know, this, this generation, this culture is obsessed with the symbolism of what drains life. It's obsessed with the symbolism of... What I will actually say is a reality of spiritual condition. Zombies. Obsessed with zombies. And the reason for that simply in my little pea brain mind, just using a little bit of logic is, you know what, it's nothing more than just a type and an example of where people's spiritual condition is at. They're walking dead. They have a form of life in the flesh and in the soul, but when it comes to the things of the Spirit, they're walking around dead. Amen or oh me. So actually, I kind of think the devil's just telling off on himself. You know, in all this absolute obsession with zombies and vampires and all this kind of stuff. So we're going to get right into it this morning and talk about the blood covenant. Here we are just a couple of weeks outside of Easter, and I can't think of a more appropriate topic. Amen? I tell you, we as Christians, we extol the virtues of the blood of our Savior. Amen? And we talk about, oh, the blood, and we talk about victory in the blood, and we talk about all these things to do with the death of Christ. And yet, I wonder how many of us actually understand the legal significance of what that means. So many people, you know, they look at, the, at this concept and we sing all these songs. And if you stop to think about it from a soulish perspective, it's really morbid. 
Would you all agree? We hear singing, we hear worship songs about, oh, the blood. You know, blessed be the blood that was, you know, given. And you just, if you stop to think about it from, from a, a position of unchurched people, what in the world would that mean? If you stop to think about it from an unchurched people's perspective, as they go through the Old Testament, particularly through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, where the law is laid out and the, the sacrifices and the different things that were demanded to atone for the sins of the people back in the day, all of which were nothing more than a type and a shadow pointing towards the real sacrifice that was intended before the foundation of the world, and that was heaven's Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. You've got to wonder what goes through people's minds. I'm talking about unchurched people now. Now, most everyone here is probably churched, and we understand some, uh, some concepts along these lines. But what about people that don't know? When they read about the concepts of, of priests that literally sacrifice tens of thousands of innocent animal lives to the point that they literally waded in blood, the blood of those sacrifices, and ministered that blood on the, on the mercy seat once a year to atone uh, for the sins of people, you've got to wonder, what in the world, what kind of a God would, would think of such a thing? Has anyone ever just had an inkling of that wonderment? What kind of a God would demand men take the lives of innocent lambs, innocent heifers, Innocent goats and take the literal life of those animals in such a brutal way and then take what, you know, the, the, what represented the, the source of their life, the essence of their life, their blood, and then use that in a sacrament. What kind of a God? We're going to learn about that today and for the next two weeks or for this week and next week. Oh, I'm so excited to deliver this. I'm so excited to deliver this. And I've delivered it before, and I attempted to give this teaching in one Sunday. And you know, there are literally courses that go an entire year to deliver the concepts and details of this. There is so much to be seen in this. So much to be understood. So what is it with covenant and Christianity? Why new covenant fellowship? I mean, we see that word in our name even, and we say it hundreds of times through the year. You know, welcome to new covenant. Welcome to new covenant. Where at church do you attend? I attend new covenant fellowship. But do we really understand what that word covenant means? I mean, I think it's, I, I, I love the word covenant. I'm obsessed with covenant. Covenant is the heart of the gospel. It's the means by which our relationship unto God was secured for all eternity. We were redeemed or purchased by blood, folks. The blood that we sing about. The blood that we fall down in worship to. Whose blood was shed? Our Jesus. And understand this. And you'll have confidence before God. 
So if you want to ask me this morning, Greg, what's the significance? The significance is the reality or revelation of the actual legality of your relationship to your heavenly Father. And how that, the legal means of that relationship affords you absolute right of access to Him at any time. And in fact, we are seated with our Redeemer at His right hand according to the Scripture. And all of this is because of blood. All of it. And in fact, really, if you look at the Bible, it's a Bible that's not of just a wonderful compilation of historical uh, uh, happenings. It's not just a it's not just a, a wonderful book of literary writings of men that thought it would be good to put these things down. It literally is a chronicling of one thing, one common theme, and it's covenant from start to finish. From Genesis to Revelation. And really when you see the word testament here and we see it put and ascribed into our holy scriptures as a collection of Old Testament, a collection of New Testament books. It really, to me, is more appropriate to actually say New Old Covenant and New Covenant. In fact, it's more powerful because we don't really think about the word testament. And uh, really, from the Hebrew perspective, the word testament and covenant go together. And it would be like you saying, my last testament and will. In other words, what I have written down legally that I'm about to leave to people when I leave this earth. It's a contract. So it is apropos, but I like the word covenant a lot better because that conveys a lot more to me than testament. So when I teach people about the Word of God and how you approach the Word of God and how you try to get revelation out of the Word of God, one of the first things that I will tell them is is that when you approach it, you need to approach it from a perspective of the fact that this chronicles covenant from cover to cover. Old covenant, new covenant. And guess who the transition is between the old and new covenant? Praise the Lord. That's right, Jesus. You know, what is it about blood? You know, from from uh, the beginning of time with Christianity, it's a bloody religion. And I don't mean it from a perspective of the the British word bloody. I mean it from a perspective of literally it is characterized by blood. Our, Christ, our faith. Why? What does it represent? Quite simply, one word. Life. It represents life. And we're going to learn about this and the significance of substitutionary sacrifice. Now, let me ask you a question this morning that I think will, will uh, kick a few religious cows in the stomach. Who was the first person to shed blood? I've heard Cain. I've heard Abel. I've heard God. Which one's the first person to shed blood? 
<laughs> it's a trick question. You all know it is. Did you all know it was God? It was God that drew first blood in this realm. And the reason for that is quite simply the concept of substitutionary sacrifice. We're going to learn about that. And you see all through the Old Testament that the significance or seriousness of any agreement between parties was always ratified through blood, either their own blood or that of a substitutionary sacrifice. And really, you know, you can see this emulated and actually copied by most every religion. And I'm talking about pagan religions. And you look and see through time, across the world and through time, that really the most sacred activities of what they did or what they do was actually signified by the use of blood or sacrifice. And it's been perverted. It was absolutely ripped off from the concept of the kingdom of God and has been used. But I'm going to tell you something. The reason for it is because there was power in sacrifice. Power in sacrifice. And there is power in covenant. Huge power. Huge power. When it's cut with blood. So we really see that the blood concept in covenant relationship is significant. Okay, so let's look at some general concepts. Hey, this works, man. Praise the Lord. So the first concept is what is covenant? Well, you know, Webster is a good place to start. Good old Webster, a fellow brother in Christ. So it's a written agreement, a promise under seal. I want you to see there's a couple of things. It's an agreement, and then it is a promise between two parties, and then there is a seal of that agreement. And then if you look in the Old Testament, it's, I mean, Webster just ripped off the Old Testament. Because it's exactly the same. And I don't, does this have laser points? That's okay. It probably does. I just don't know how to do it. Well, let's see. Nope. Okay, so the Old Testament is the same thing. It's a binding obligation. In other words, it's an agreement from one party to another or between two parties. But the significance of the Old Testament is, is that without question, the seal that is, that is used in the Old Testament concept of covenant is blood. So when we talk about covenant and we talk about blood covenant, then we're talking about the biblical concept of covenant. Because the biblical concept of covenant is about that striking the relationship that was absolutely lifelong, one life for another, And therein lies the seal, the significance of the seal, being blood. Because guess what? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when blood is shed or used as a seal or a signet of that relationship, you're as good as saying, my life is yours. Your life is mine till death do us part. And then even then, it didn't stop. 
because then there was a, co- a concept of this relationship that would carry forth to the posterity of those families. And if you don't believe me, then you look at David and Jonathan. Does anyone remember Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Try to say that name a bunch of times real quick. quick. He was one of the household of Jonathan, and he was way after Jonathan had died, after really that as far as the covenant was concerned, David could have, have not done anything more. But because he loved Jonathan so much, because he gave his life in a blood covenant to Jonathan, he said when he realized there was someone, is there someone of the house that I can still honor the covenant with? Folks, we have no concept of the gravity of covenant. No concept. But I hope after two weeks we will. You know, the the reason is, is because the Bible was written by Middle Eastern folk. Middle Eastern. (laughs) And Omid says, woohoo! Because he has some Middle Eastern blood in him. And it was written by these races that we don't understand, that we have no concept of really the reality of what they lived in day in, day out in terms of relationship with one another. And covenant was a part of Middle Eastern life, very much a part. And we just don't understand this. We understand types and shadows. We understand fragments, but we don't understand it like the Middle Eastern folk do. So let's talk about a few things to do with covenant. How about the reasons for covenant? And this is not an exhaustive list. But this will give you some some substantive reasons for covenant. The first one is protection. Do you know that many nations would come, and you see it chronicled in the Old Testament, where nations would come to Israel or would come to other kings of Israel and actually covenant with them. Why? Because they were going to die if they didn't have another partner with them in their endeavors. You all see what I'm saying? And to this day, there are tribes in Africa, there are people and nations that covenant with one another for this purpose. Protection. You know, the weak tribe will go to the strong tribe and will ask them to covenant with them. And they'll literally become one with them in concept, in terms of materiality, in terms of of what they are doing and their purposes and their plans. Business deals or partnerships is another reason for covenant. And this is perhaps what Western culture has a little bit more of a concept of when it comes to covenant. You know, contracts. You know, I'm sure everyone here in some form or fashion has written their name on the dotted line for something. You're agreeing to something with that party. So businesses, business deals or partnerships. Devotion, we've already talked about this. Devotion in friendship, in relationship, that you adore someone and love them so much that you literally are going to give yourself to them to your dying breath. And then we see this best exemplified in marriage. And you know, folks, I grow so weary 
with this culture's denigration of the marriage concept. It makes me sick to see what this culture and these later generations have done to soil the substance of what really should be the pinnacle of example of blood covenant relationship between people in this earth. Amen or oh me. We live in a society today that does not want to commit. It's okay to live together. Because guess what? I don't have a commitment if I decide all of a sudden one day when I wake up that I don't like you. Amen or oh me. I tell you what, I can't get off on this because it, it brings a raging Cajun up inside of me to think about it. I'm going to tell you, folks, we're one day when Jesus cracks the sky and we know as we're known, we're going to face a lot of reality. And some of the reality that some of us are going to face is how many different blood covenants you've cut with people on the face of this earth that you did not keep through sexual union with people outside of marriage. I'm telling you right now, you can say what you want to say. This isn't thus saith Greg, because my spirit is going, and I know that, because it's the spirit of truth identifying with me and giving me a co-witness in this. Okay, so let's move on. Okay, so what about ways to cut covenant? I'm sorry, this is a little bit of PG-13. So if, 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 if we have concerns with the graphic nature of some of this, then I'm, I'm telling you right now, it's a little bit graphic. I guess I blew that out of the heck with my first slide. The first way that can be done, and this was a real traditional and very uh, uh, used way of, of cutting covenant, was to literally cut the palms of the hands of the two parties. And then guess what they did? They shook hands. Does this look like anything that we're familiar with? Actually, it's a remnant of covenant. To shake hands. And honestly, as much as it's near and dear to me and I enjoy shaking hands with people, it's really denigrating to covenant. Because guess what? I'm shaking hands with thousands of people. Now, don't get me wrong here now. I'm not trying to start a new doctrine or religion that we're not supposed to shake hands. Does everyone hear me? It's fine to shake hands. Please shake people's hands. But at the same time, when you do, let this be in the back of your, of your soul. You know, really, as I'm shaking hands with someone, this is a symbolic. This is symbolic of covenant. Do you all see that? The next one is to cut the risks 
wrists and bind them together. And, and you know, I've got to, I found it. And by the way, I've got to, to give a, uh, I've got to give a, a, a little aside here or a reference or a citate references cited thing here. Every picture you see, I pirated or I, I took off the Internet. So I'm just saying right now that I give credit to whomever put that picture on the Internet. See, that's duly noted on the tape. I'm giving whoever you are, I give a credit to you. It wasn't me. I did not produce these pictures. So cut the wrist and actually tie the hands together and let the blood mingle in, in symbolism. The next one is to cut to bleeding. And then this is the one that probably a lot of us would have a lot of issues with. If we haven't already had issues with cutting ourselves just to begin with, and then putting those bloods together, then you're probably really going to have an issue with this one. You know, I mean, I love Cornell. I do, brother, man. I love you. I ain't going to drink your blood, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, so they would put it in like wine and then drink it. So, and it's symbolism. It's not like they put a gallon of blood in there. It was just like a few drops. And it was symbolic, though. Because guess what? The, the essence of that person's life and the essence of this person's life were put together in that vessel. Were mixed and intermingled. And then the the... Symbolism of you taking that into yourself. Y'all see that? Oh, man. Have you ever heard anyone in all of your readings say something that sounds like this? Cornell says, Jesus. How many of y'all agree with that? And did you know when Jesus said that, a lot of people left him. Because he said, unless you drink my blood. What kind of talk is that? That's covenant talk. It gives me chills. It gives me chills to say it. That's covenant talk. He said, you have no part with me. What did he mean by that? He meant you would not have relationship with me if you don't do this. This is what he's talking about. Hallelujah. Man, it's almost like, a, 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 it's almost like David, Selah. Pause and think of that. I can see why put, or David put all them Selahs in his psalms. Because he would, and he didn't even have the Spirit of God inside of him to shine a light, to bring illumination. It was just the Spirit of God upon him. How much more us in this day and age with the spirit of the living God inside of us to illuminate our minds, to bring revelation and renewal should say Selah every once in a while. Man, I got to get going or I'm going to lose it right there. And the next, the last concept here, one concept here that's, that's worth of note. Covenants ratified by blood were, were not broken. 
And if they were broken, death was the penalty. And if you don't believe me, then read the Old Testament. How many people died in the wilderness? How many people, even the, the, the people of, of the Levitical priesthood, died? Why? If you want to get right down to it, it wasn't just because of disobedience. It was because they broke the covenant. They broke it. And then the law demanded that happen. Do we sit around and think that God sits up there like a grand uh, deity looking over the soap opera of life and gets some thrills and kicks out of that kind of stuff? I hope not, folks, because the same Bible that chronicles that also says that my God delights in mercy. And in fact, it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Folks, I think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to realize how much of a goofed up concept we've had of God in so many ways. And one of them will be the, the, the absolute nature of the fabric of God's inner being as he sees this stuff unfold, as this stuff takes place. And I know that he cries because of it. Jesus cried. He was touched with the feeling of this infirmities that we know. And that's not just sickness. The Father delights in mercy. Not judgment. But that doesn't mean that judgment is, is left out of the picture. Okay. Where are we at? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so let's, let's move on here. There's a lot of books that have been written about covenant. And uh, this happens to be one from E.W. Kenyon. There's another one written by Malcolm Smith. It's wonderful. There's actually dozens of them. Um, I wanted to read something out of here, and I'm not normally one that's real pumped about people reading stuff when they're teaching, but I'm going to read stuff. So I'm going to break my... <laughs> one illustration of Stanley's might help us to grasp the significance. When Stanley was seeking Livingstone... He came in contact with a powerful equatorial tribe. They were very warlike. This is, this is in Africa. I look at my African brother here. This is, this is over there in Africa. Stanley was not in condition to fight them. Finally, his interpreter asked him why he didn't make a strong covenant with them. Now, his interpreter would guess what? Be an African who understood this. And he's like, brother, why don't you make a covenant? Instead of being all scared going through this country delivering the gospel of Jesus Christ, why don't you make covenant with some of these tribes? And so then he asked what it meant. It was told that it meant drinking each other's blood. Stanley revolted from such a right, but conditions kept growing worse until finally the young colored man 
asked him again why he did not cut the covenant with the chieftain of the tribe. Stanley asked what the results of such a covenant would be, and the interpreter answered, everything the chieftain has will be yours if you need it. Hallelujah. Do you all hear that? This appealed to Stanley. Well, I hope it would, or you're dense as a brick. So Stanley did what? He investigated. After several days of negotiation, they arrived at the covenant. First, there was a parlay in which the chieftain questioned Stanley as to his motives in standing. See, they don't go into covenant lightly. And his ability to keep the covenant. Oh, man. We could preach for two weeks just on that. So here, here's the chieftain asking him, hey, how about your ability to keep this covenant if we cut it? The next step was an exchange of gifts. The old chieftain wanted Stanley's new white goat. Stanley was in poor health, and goat's milk was about all he could take for nourishment, so it was very hard for him to give this up. But the chieftain seemed to want nothing else. So he finally gave up the goat, and the old chieftain handed him the seven-foot copper-wound spear. I'm going to tell you one thing about covenant you're going to see is, is that there is a, an exchange, and the exchange is not just anything you pull out of mama's back drawer. The exchange is an item of extreme worth and value and meaning. Stanley thought he had been beaten, but he found that wherever he went in Africa with that spear, everybody bowed to him and submitted to him. Folks, I want you to think about the covenant that we have with our Father God. And I want you to think about the spear that we've received, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm not much of a dancer, but I'm having a hard time. The old chieftain then brought in one of his princes. Stanley led forth one of his men from England. So here we see substitutes that represent the party. Then the priest came forward with a cup of wine, made an incision in the young black man's wrist, and let the blood drip into the cup of wine. He cut a like incision in the wrist of the young Englishman and let his blood also drip in the cup of wine. This is the concept of substitution. Does this sound like something that might apply to something we love, love and have come to church to celebrate? Our substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus, instead of us. The priest handed the cup up to the Englishman and he drank part of it. And then he handed it to the black man and he drank the rest of it. Next, they rubbed their wrists together so that their bloods mingled. Now they had become blood brothers. These two men were only substitutes, but they had bound Stanley and the chieftain and Stanley's men and the chieftain's soldiers into a blood brotherhood that was indissoluble. Then gunpowder was rubbed into the wound so that when it healed, there would be a black mark to indicate that they were covenant men. The next step in the ceremony was the planting of trees, trees that were known for their long life. After the planting of trees, then the chieftain stepped forward and shouted, Come, buy, and sell with Stanley, for he is our brother. 
A few hours before, Stanley's men had to stand on guard about the bales of cotton and trinkets that they had. But now he could open the bales and leave them on the street and nothing was disturbed. For anyone to steal from their blood brother Stanley was a death penalty. The old chieftain couldn't do enough for his newfound brother. Stanley couldn't understand the sacredness of it. Ten years later, wondered about it. Like I said, I don't normally read stuff, but I tell you what, man, there's so much in that. I mean, we could just sail all right now and just think about this. And, and, and think about the chieftain being the Father God. And the representative being Jesus. Okay, i got to go on. Okay, so steps to covenant. First, there's a binding obligation. A pronouncement that parties bind themselves in mutual commitment to one another. And just like we saw there between Stanley and the chieftain of that tribe, oftentimes it's not the actual parties themselves. It's a representative that's chosen. So they would choose a representative for this party, choose a representative for this party, and then these are the two then that would actually carry out the demonstrative acts of this relationship being cut. You know, if you want to stop and think about it, here's a weird perspective. Have you ever stopped to think that the story of David and Goliath was a story of covenant? Do we see one party? And another party. Do we see a, a, an action or a request for commitment? Yes. What did Goliath say? Let you choose someone from among your ranks to fight me. And if you win, guess what? We'll be your slaves. And what did, what did, what did, what did they have to do? Choose someone from there? Or, or then Goliath is going to fight the person that would come from them. So he represented the Philistines. This is a covenant relationship, folks. That's what they were cutting. And guess, guess what would ratify the covenant? Blood. Y'all see that? No, it's a covenant. Now, it's a weird one. I mean, it's not weird in terms of the covenant, you know, the process of covenant, but it's weird in the fact that you would have enemies become, you know, become blood brothers. I mean, they would have to, and they would be bound by it. So then we know what happened, though, because the representative of the Israelites, the champion, or came out to fight the champion of the Philistines as a representative to represent this covenant being cut. And we know right off the bat what David said. And it was covenant talk. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, when he said that, dear Lord, do you think that he was just basically, you know, do you think that he saw Goliath and saw and beheld that he was uncircumcised. And so he was just simply stating the fact. If that happened, then the Bible, it would, ha- that would have to be written in there for us to know that. But I don't see that. I know that sounds funny. Then my question to you is, how, why would David make such a statement? Because the seal on man's side of the covenant with God in terms of their blood being cut, guess what it was? Circumcision. And I see a bunch of guys squirming around. 
And I'll tell you what, whenever that was instituted with Abraham, he wasn't a nice, genteel, very quickly recovering 11-year-old boy. He was an old man at that time that had had certain things around for a lot longer than an 11-year-old boy would. And it was going to hurt a lot more. And it was going to bleed a lot more. I know this sounds gross, but please get past the grossness of it. It's so significant. And, you know, we're going to learn about that in a little bit. Why would God ask that the sign and seal and memorialization of the covenant with his man be memorialized in that area? Why not cut off a lobe of the ear for crying out loud? I mean, come on, man. Cut off a digit of your finger. So it was covenant talk when David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Because that meant if you were circumcised, you were only circumcised for one reason. Because it was memorializing the relationship of covenant with your father. And so guess what David was saying? He's out of the fold. He does not have the blessing of Almighty Jehovah God over him. Guess what? This land has been given to those that are in covenant with Almighty Jehovah God. And he's standing on the land that's rightfully belonging to them. So guess what? He's going to be displaced by the guarantor of that covenant and the power of it. And was he displaced? Oh, man. Oh, man, was he ever displaced. And, you know, David took that head and he went all over the place with that head. Oh, man, I got it. I'm out. It's hard not to get off and preach on stuff. So a binding obligation. Okay, the next one, the next step into covenant is a solemn oath. A solemn affirmation, a binding of oneself to the fulfillment of the words that are spoken under that agreement. And when you do this, you do it in such a manner that, that at least according to the Old Testament, your words are, are sworn to a higher power than yourself. To, to not, not because... Not, it's, and what it is, is it's a statement of your commitment to say, I am not sufficient enough to watch over my word, but my God who created me, I'm in, in, enduring myself unto him. I'm committing myself unto him in this process to watch over the very words that I enunciate that if I don't fulfill them, then he, I fall under judgment. You see what I'm saying? That's called an oath. You know, we see that today even. Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help you, God? Well, so help you, God, is what I'm talking about. Solemn oath. And so it's, 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 using the high, it's invoking the highest authority that you can as a witness to your, to your commitment. <clears throat> Hebrews 6.16 says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. That's Hebrews 6.16. That shows you exactly what I'm talking about. 
Okay, so the next one. The next step in covenant, after you have this binding obligation, you've taken a solemn oath to carry this out. Then you have a blessing or promise of benefits. So there's a promise of benefits with regard to, okay, now look, because you're covenanting with me, this is what you get. And and the other person goes, okay, I'm covenanting with you, so this is what I get. Y'all see what I'm saying? It's the benefits of covenant to each other. And we talked about David's commitment to Jonathan even after Jonathan's death, and it went to, to Mephibosheth. The next thing is sacrifice. I don't know why that those little square things are around my hand, bloody hand there, but that keeps me up. Okay. And here's the deal with blood covenant. If it's a blood covenant, then there's always the shedding of blood involved. And oftentimes, the body of the sacrifice that was used was literally split in half. One half mirror opposite of the other half. The party on the other side of the end of the length of those pieces, one party on the other side of the other end of the length of those pieces, and literally what they would do is exchange places as they walked along the bloody path between those pieces. And when they did that, it symbolized that we now walk together as one life. The two pieces representing the two parties, but the, the blood line between the parties being a literal representation of we are now walking together as one. Y'all see that? Okay, so then the next step is a seal. And we heard about this in Livingstone in terms of his his covenant with the African tribe, the chieftain. What did it say? It said that they literally took ashes or gunpowder and they put into the wound. And I wanted to try to get some images of that because there's some horrific, it causes horrific scarring. There are tribes that literally, instead of tattoos, they impregnate uh, irritating substances that cause localized growth of skin and tumors that, that literally mark them in a pattern. And they do this to memorialize covenant in their body for the rest of their life. And we've already talked about God's chosen memorialization in, with man back when the first covenant, the old covenant was cut. Hallelujah. The old covenant. That was circumcision. When a man did that, he bore that the rest of his life. And I know that this sounds kind of gross, but the bottom line is that man that did that was going to see that multiple times through the day. I know that sounds funny, but you think about it. And when he saw that, don't you think it would invoke a memory of what that, why that happened? Dear Lord, I would hope so. Uh, the pain he went through, different things. Don't you think he'd say, man, I'm in covenant with Jehovah. I know that sounds a little weird, but that's what it was to do. It was a memorialization. The next thing is a meal, a covenant meal. You know, almost every time covenants were finalized with meals. 
declaring that they are now valid and that the covenant is now in effect. And you shared one with another the intaking of this sustenance. You know, symbolically, the same loaf and drink were exchanged in a visual testament to the unity now manifest in this relationship. And how many of us can just think just a second and think, hmm, there's a certain meal that we partake of as believers that sounds a lot like what Greg is talking about. Communion. Absolutely. Communion is a covenant meal. And isn't it interesting that Jesus said, as often as you do it. Why? Because when you do it, guess what you're doing? I know it was funny, like the man, but you're doing this and you're thanking yourself. I'm in covenant. I'm in covenant. Every time you drink that wine that you know represents the blood of Christ, you eat that bread that represents his body, you're saying to yourself, I'm in covenant. And you're being just like David because in this, and I encourage you to use communion as a, as a decisive weapon. Because what you can do is when you're under particular attack, guess what the best thing you can do is go back to the fabric of your relationship with Almighty God. And so the, one of the quickest ways you can do is to pray in the Spirit and invoke that Spirit that's inside of you to pray when you don't know how, how to pray as you ought. And then guess what? Partake of the covenant meal that when you take the symbolic elements thereof that represent your relationship legally with the Father that says, all that He has is mine. And so I can boldly declare, like Pastor Dale says, the Lord is my helper. Well, how can you boldly declare that? Because guess what? I'm in covenant. I'm in covenant. And that covenant's lifelong. It can never be broken. It can never be dissolved. Hallelujah. And the last thing to do with uh, general steps in covenant is that they referred to each other then as friends. And, you know, this is something that our culture, like the handshake, has really diluted the meaning of what friendship really is. Because to be called friends back in the day in Middle Eastern cultures, that was as good as you saying, I'm in covenant with that person. I have rights with that person. I'm one with that person. Friendship was the pinnacle. Of relationship. Oh, my stars. Friends were people that were devoted to the death. Friends got you back. Use it in common vernacular. All the way to the end. And today, you know, we use friendship so loosely. And, you know, I can invoke and think of the, the, the Spirit of God brings to my mind when Jesus turned his disciples and said, This day I call you friends. You're no longer servants. I call you friends. What was Jesus referring to when he said that? He was referring to covenant. And I'm going to tell you, those folks, when Jesus said friends, they knew what that meant. Because then all of a sudden, the relationship with Jesus was elevated. I'm not outside the camp. I'm one with him. Oh, man, Selah. Selah. Friends. 
Okay, so I was talking to you about how two parties in a covenant would actually have a sacrifice between them, and they would separate the, the pieces. They would cut it in half like a, go- a goat or a sheep, and they would separate the pieces opposite one another in mirror image. And then what they would do is one stand on one end of the length of it, the other stand on the other, and then that red represents the blood that's all around and in between those pieces. And they would literally walk along that bloody path, sometimes doing, I've heard, a figure eight between the pieces. Does this sound like anything that we've heard in the Old Testament? How about when God cut the covenant with Abraham, and Abraham said, God, can you give me a sign that what you say is going to happen? Not to say that I doubt you, God, but I'd like to have a physical sign to help my my unbelief. And then we know what happened, and we're going to talk about that next week, so I don't want to steal the thunder of that. But I will give you a little bit of a preface in terms of the fact that whenever the time came, I'm going to tell you, I wish I had a laser point. Let's put the blue person in the blue realm. That's or blue robe, that's God. The person in the green would be Abraham. And I got to tell you, man, that smoking pot and that fiery torch came, and what did it say it did? It went between the pieces. And it came back and it went between the pieces. And that smoking pot is representative of the Spirit of God. And that, that burning torch is representative of the light of truth of God's Word. And the fullness of who He represents went between those pieces. Okay, I can't get ahead. Okay, so you remember I was talking about the handshake. This is actually a, a painting from the 1600s. I can't remember the dude's name. It's on the, the file. But here is, and it's actually called the covenant. And here we see, you know, people modern day at that time in 1600s cutting a covenant between one another. And here's the handshake. All the way back to the 1600s. We can see this. Uh Uh-oh, this thing turned off. I think it ran out of battery. Rats. Oh, can you go forward for me? Okay. Okay, so now let's talk about blood and sacrifice. So roll forward. One. First of all, why is blood so important? Why blood covenant? Well, simply because blood represents life. And roll forward again. And we see that God sets forth in Genesis chapter 9, 3 through 4. God gives the animals as food. Oh, and by the way, the first blood that was shed was when God killed the animal to make skins to cover the nakedness of, the, of Adam and Eve. Sorry, I left you all hanging on that. I heard, I heard Joseph say, oh... He killed an innocent creature to do what? To cover. To cover. And that's all it could do was cover. It couldn't remit. It couldn't take the sins away, but it could cover until someone would come and sacrifice and offer themselves not the blood of, of, of bulls and goats, but a body thou hast prepared for me. That's Jesus talking prophetically. To offer his blood once and for all. And so we see Genesis 9, 3-4, God gives the animals as food, but directs them not to eat the blood. Why? 
Can someone venture a guess after all the stuff we've talked about why God would absolutely prohibit men and women from drinking the blood or eating the blood of, man, of, of animals? It's simply because that represents their life. And we, as the pinnacle of God's creation, to be redeemed and called forth from the foundation of the earth, to be redeemed by the blood of heaven's Passover lamb, we're, we're due to drink one blood, to take one person's life or element of life with inside of us. And whose was that? Jesus. We're not to take in the life of, of any other, other sacrament but that of Jesus. Hallelujah. That's why I feel like that they weren't supposed to drink the blood. Because we were destined for Jesus' blood. We were destined to drink it. Okay, go ahead to the next one. Okay, next one. So God institutes then in Leviticus the concept of the substitutionary sacrifice. In using these innocent animals and their blood, their life, to, to, to atone for the sins of men. And so we can see... For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It means for your lives. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. It doesn't say it's the flesh. It doesn't say it's the eyeball or whatever. It says it's the blood that makes atonement. So this is the principle of substitutionary sacrifices. And the thing about these sacrifices were, is that they were repeated constantly, year after year, day after day, season after season. And so what did it do? It served to help mitigate one of man's greatest weaknesses, and that is forgetfulness. By having before him an object lesson of this substitutionary sacrifice that was necessary for, to pay the penalty... For their sin. Because I tell you folks, when you stop and you have to take an innocent lamb that hasn't done nothing to nobody, certainly you, and you take that animal and you have to look at that animal in the eyes and you have to see the lights go out. And watch, the, watch as its life is literally poured forth. I would have to say that when you do that, that's going to have a little bit of an impact on you. Unless you're a twisted weirdo. And we have some of those. And what kind of an effect should it have? It should have an effect that when you see the innocence of that animal sacrificed on your behalf, you need to think to yourself, why, am I, why does this animal have to die? Why does this have to happen? This isn't right. No, it's not right because guess whose blood should be exacted? Yours. If you get right down to it. But yet God was putting before them an object lesson for the one and only sacrifice that was intended to take away the sins of the world. And that was the sacrifice of heaven's Passover lamb, Jesus, our beloved Jesus. But it wasn't his time to come yet. So all that time up until then, object lesson after object lesson after object lesson after object lesson of then innocent blood having to be shed for guilt. Innocent blood having to be shed for guilt. 
innocent life having to be killed for, for, for guilty life. And the thing is, the, the real reason for why that that blood was valuable, how it could even do anything to even atone for the sins of man, is because it was really nothing more. It was really nothing more than an IOU of God, from God to himself. To where every time that blood was sprinkled on the altar of the mercy seat once a year to represent an atonement to cover the, the sins of the year for that, the, the, uh, the tribes, the Israelites, then every time that sprinkle was put upon there, it said that blood would, would cry out and make a demand for the blood of Christ one day. I owe you the blood of Jesus Christ. I owe you the sacrifice of his life. I owe you the fullness of everything that he is so that we can take upon ourselves that fullness and lose our emptiness. Hallelujah. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Day of Atonement. Okay, the next one. Okay, the Day of Atonement was, I've already just gone through some of this. It was one time of year. Next one. And that what would happen is the high priest of that year would take two goats, one of which was actually the sacrificial goat, uh, uh, with the blood of which would go through what I just talked about. They would literally be, the, the sins would be pronounced upon that goat, the high priest would take the blood of that goat, would kill it, take the blood of that goat in before the, the Ark of the Covenant and spread, sprinkle it on the mercy seat in exacting accordance with the law. The next one was called the scapegoat. How many of you all have ever been a scapegoat in your life? This is where the term comes from. Because what would happen then in this case was they would take the second goat and the high priest would then, before the people would put his hands upon that goat and pronounce the sins of that nation upon for the year upon that goat. Then they would take that goat out of the camp and release it into the wilderness. And I like to look at this as the sea of forgetfulness. Hallelujah. That's what's happened with our sins. Hallelujah. Jesus has cast them as far as the east is from the west. He's carried them away from us is what the scripture says. He was the scapegoat. He had all the sins that we would ever commit pronounced upon him so that he could carry them out of the camp, folks, forever and ever and ever into the sea of forgetfulness. Hallelujah. Okay, the next one. And all this did was atone for the people's sin. And atone really just means to cover. And I, I jumped ahead of myself, but it was right for me to do so. It's an IOU. Next one. And it's an object lesson of the people for the people to remind them of the penalty of their sin. Next one. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 4 and 11. And it also foreshadowed Jesus' sacrifice, which is so well put in Isaiah uh, 1, 11. Okay, next one. That's it. So I want to just, uh, I want to read something to you right quick and then we'll be finished. Listen to what Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says. It says, for the law since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, which is what we just got through talking about, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. See, there's the scripture for what I talked about, about a reminder, an object lesson. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and time and time and time again the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. What do they do? They just cover up, cover, that's it. It just puts an IOU for, for, for the future. Just covers. Isaiah 111, the multitude of your sacrifices. This is God saying to the prophet, the multitude of your sacrifices, and they were many. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. So here we see the very Lord himself pronouncing the fact he didn't want those animals to have to die any more than anyone else did. And he wasn't getting some weird kicks out of seeing those animals die. He didn't want that. And then we'll see that when you see the fulfillment of that scripture or the rest of that scripture where it talks about, but the, I, you desired a body which you have prepared for me. That's what he desired. He desired the body of Jesus and his blood. And then we're going to pick up next week and talk about these covenants. Hallelujah. So would you stand with me? Precious Father, we are so grateful. We're just so grateful. We're so grateful for your love for us.